are in Mark chapter 1. As we continue our uh, journey verse by verse through the New Testament, we finished off the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Mark, we're just going to keep on going through. Um, and, and really, while I love going verse by verse, the idea of going through all four Gospels, I think it just lays such a good groundwork for us to understand the character of Jesus, right? It, it's, it's great to study through one, but when we study through all four, we get such a clear picture of his personality, of his character, and, and so I'm looking forward to that as we continue on. Last week, in the first half of chapter one, we talked about John the Baptist, and not just that he was the one preparing the way. I mean, that's super important. There's prophecy given about John the Baptist and the role that he would play. But also for us to consider that the Lord is using him like a mile marker. That when John the Baptist came on the scene, it meant that the Messiah was next. And we also saw how it showed the society's response, the, the people of Israel. While they could have gone to the temple in, in Jerusalem and there was all of the worship and there were all the priesthood and there was all the stuff, they went out into the desert to this crazy preacher that just gave the simple message of repentance. That though they had the full show in Jerusalem, what they hungered for was truth. Just simple truth. And sure enough, as he is giving out this truth, he's also letting them know, letting them know that the Messiah is on his way, and then Jesus shows up. And to me, again, that's, that's super cool, because a lot of times in Scripture, the, the message will be, you know, very soon, or, you know, this is happening next, and we're like, great, but that might be a thousand years. But in this case, John the Baptist was saying, hey, there's one that comes after me, and there he is. You know, it was, it was that fast. And, and so he baptizes Jesus, and not only do we see Jesus connecting with us, that's what his baptism was about. It wasn't about repentance. He didn't have sin to repent from. It was about being counted among us, being connected to us. When he comes up out of the water, God speaks from heaven, and the crowd hears him say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So then John, or excuse me, uh, and then Jesus goes into the desert for there's a time of temptation. He begins his ministry. And so with these things going on, the, the word about Jesus is getting out. Now it's not huge yet, but it is happening within that region. So when Jesus calls the four disciples, we understand why they leave so quickly. They leave their nets, they leave their father, they leave the family business. It wasn't that Jesus was just some random guy. They already knew who he was and uh, believed or hoped at this point that he was the Messiah. So now in the second half of the chapter, we see Jesus in his authority. And I, I think it's so good for us to understand Jesus in his authority. That's a word we don't, we don't, like a lot in our society. It's usually connected with negative things. We, have, we all have lots of examples of bad authority. I mean, whether you want to talk about government or bosses or you know, local government, whatever it might be. Uh, unfortunately, some of it's parents, and we're like, yeah, I've, seen, I've got so many bad examples of authority. But Jesus is the perfect example of what authority is supposed to be. And he is stepping out uh, in this 
new demonstration of his authority. Again, this is the beginning of, of his ministry. So in the first half of the chapter, we see Jesus in obedience and submission. That we see him in obedience to the Father and being baptized. We see him in obedience to the Holy Spirit and going out into the desert. But now, and there's, this is an important chain of events, because from submission and obedience comes authority. And it's true for Jesus and it's true for us. That he steps out in this amazing authority. So, let's pray and we'll get into the rest of chapter 1. God, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that uh, we would just have our ears tuned to hear what you want to say to each and every one of us today. That you would show us how these things apply. And uh, Lord, just teach us more about yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So starting in verse 21. Just realize I pasted my notes over part of the scripture here. Let me find. There we go. Okay. Verse 21. It says, And then they went out into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout the region around Galilee. Now Jesus goes into the synagogue and teaches, and this is something that... I. We don't understand very well, or it's not certainly not the same way it is in our culture, the way we do church, um, but just the way that Jesus goes into the synagogue and begins to teach, we see Paul doing the same thing later on uh, in the book of Acts. And the way they had set up the synagogues was really interesting. First of all, most synagogues, especially in small towns, did not have a rabbi, that there just weren't enough teachers to go around. So the Jewish believers would gather and and they would usually have somebody that was um, the leader. And really all that meant is he was like the administrator. That he would kind of make sure that he knew the, the scriptures that were going to be read and the order of service. But throughout all of Israel, there was this thing that they did was like this open teaching style. And so anytime somebody came into the synagogue that had the ability to read and teach, uh, they would just kind of identify themselves. And say, I'm willing to read the scriptures today and teach. And it wasn't like this self-promotion thing. It was really considered to be their obligation. That if they had the ability, they had to let the leader of the synagogue know. And there might be multiple, or they may already have somebody lined up. In which case, they would say, well, thank you very much, but you can have a seat. And so when Jesus would walk in, and along with Paul later on, they would just say, I am able to teach today. And most often, that would be the person they're like, great. Have at it, you know? And so this gives Jesus an open door to come into these synagogues and be able to teach. Now, we, in this case, we don't know what the scripture reading was. We don't know what he taught. But we definitely see 
the uh, effect of his teaching. And uh, in verse 22, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In other words, in complete contrast to what they were used to, that any of the scribes, the rabbis, and teachers, um, the way they would tend to teach in, at Jesus' time was they didn't really take a stand on anything. So they'd come in and they'd read the scripture and then they'd give the interpretation of other people, right? It would be like if I got up and went, well, okay, so here's the scripture today and this is what uh, David Guzik said about it and this is what Chuck Smith said about it and this is what this other person said about it, but I never tell you what I think about it. And that's what they would do. They would usually rely on rabbis and teachers that were long dead so they didn't have to take responsibility either and they could say, oh, yeah, Rabbi so-and-so, he believes that meant this. But on the other side, this other rabbi said this. And then they just leave it there. <laughs> you guys figure it out. In contrast to that, Jesus gets up and goes, this is what the Scripture means. Here's the truth that's in it. Here's how it applies to you, right? And so they're just blown away that not only is he taking a stand, he's teaching it accurately. It is, he's, and I can't imagine, you know, what, how amazing would that be to sit and listen to Jesus teach the scriptures, right? <laughs> It'd be awesome. And if anyone were to say, well, how do you know that's what it means? You know, he could literally answer, because that's what it meant when I wrote it, right? Yeah. I wrote this. <laughs> I created this law. I know how it applies. I know the heart behind it. If if you know the heart of Jesus, you know the heart of the Father. And, and he's able to reveal that in teaching. So much so that people are absolutely in awe. They don't even know how to deal with it. Um, and, and I love it. The people are already blown away by his teaching. And then this event of this demon-possessed man who's in the synagogue takes place. Uh, and again, we don't know the story here. I've got all kinds of questions. As I read this, I'm, I'm like, first of all, why is this guy in church? <laughs> why is there a demon-possessed guy going, let's go to synagogue today? And the other question I ask, and again, this is just kind of how my brain spins out of control, is did the other people in the synagogue know he was demon-possessed? Or was he just the odd guy that showed up every once in a while, right? I mean, they're like, oh, yeah, there's Barry, and he's our demon-possessed guy. He shows up every Sabbath. You know, we don't know what to do with him, and or were they just like, yeah, Barry's a little odd. We don't know what's up. Until this day, they're like, oh, that's Barry's problem. <laughs> that guy's demon-possessed. We didn't even know it. All this really doesn't go anywhere. It's just, like I said, my thoughts. Um, but what I love is this guy, know, this demon, knows exactly who Jesus is. And he cries out, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now see, I think we forget some of the backstory of Jesus. That a lot of times we, we just remember that, you know, his birth in Bethlehem and his ministry on the earth. But before all that, he was there in heaven. In fact, he was there the day these angels were created. And these demons have lost their place because of a rebellion, and now they're demons. But there was a day 
They were created in heaven. And Jesus knows every one of their names. And to me, there's something heartbreaking about that. That here are these beings that were created for an amazing, glorious purpose. And Jesus knows them intimately. And now he's encountering them again face to face in their fallen, rebellion, twisted state. And they know exactly who he is. Now, in Israel, the idea or the event of somebody being demon-possessed is not something all that new. So, while it would have been shocking, it wasn't hugely shocking. Like, well, we've never heard of this. We never knew this existed. They knew very well of, of demon possession. And it was, in some ways, like a plague where they knew it had happened. They saw the, the effects of it. They just had no ability to do anything about it, right? But I imagine for them, just like, I mean, for us, the idea of somebody being demon possessed, like an actual demon, the power of hell, it's, it's terrifying. But I, I also picture this event, you know, how this all went, went down. Here's this guy, demon-possessed, crying out, yelling in the synagogue. But instead of everybody being terrified of him, they realize it's the demon who's terrified. It's, it's the demon that usually strikes fear into everybody, but now everybody's witnessing it's the demon who's fill, filled with fear. And, and who's he afraid of? Jesus. Again, I love it. I love the authority that's happening here. And now in Israel, when, when they did have somebody that was demon-possessed, and it would finally get so bad that they would bring in this special group of priests that kind of, you know, that was their thing, is dealing with demon possession. And there was this whole thing that they did. It was this big, long kind of ceremony, and it was more like witchcraft than it was scriptural. I mean, they would invoke certain names of God, and they would invoke certain scripture, but it was also like this special incense and special little hoops they'd all jump through. Uh, according to, to history, sometimes it worked. Most of the time, it didn't. But now again, in contrast to that, Jesus just speaks, and it's done. No, no big show, no, no ceremony, no magic incense or anything else. Just in his authority, Jesus gives this demon actually two commands. First of all, in verse 25, he tells him, be quiet. And again, I, I like that he does that, right? Because in some ways we could almost think, okay, well, this demon is actually confessing who Jesus is. His fear of Jesus kind of is a testimony to Jesus' power. And, Je and Jesus really, in telling him to be quiet, is saying, I don't need your advertising. I don't want you promoting me. I don't want you to be the one that tells people who I am. I'll do that. And I think also that he doesn't want him distracting from what's going on, you know. And the enemy is a master at, at distracting us, just taking us a few degrees off course of what God actually wants to do. And so Jesus, first of all, tells him, be quiet. And then he just says, come out of him. And again, the authority behind that, I, I love it. Your time's done. And we don't know how long this guy's been demon-possessed. Was it a year? Was it 10 years? We have no idea. But his situation would have seemed hopeless until Jesus spoke. Come out of him. And it's done. The guy is delivered and set free. 
And again, in, in a right way, while people are in, amazed at the event, they're more amazed at Jesus himself and what he's able to do. In verse 27, it says, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even unclean spirits, to, and, the, and they obey him. Again, they'd never seen this in Israel. Just with a word, the demons must obey. Again, the other thing I think of is that this is a pretty big day in this little synagogue. <laughs> you know, that there were people that decided, you know what, I don't feel up to it. I'm not going today. And later on, went, what happened? You know, <laughs> Jesus shows up and he teaches. And then Barry, who has been weird the whole time, as a demon cast out of him. And it's a big day. You know, a lot going on. And uh, because of that, word of Jesus spread throughout the entire region. Now, he tells the guy, don't tell anyone. <laughs> About, which is funny. You know, I just picture Jesus. He knows that what's going to happen. He's like, I'm going to ask anyway. Could you just not say anything? Could you? <laughs> and, and they go out, and of course, they just spread the word everywhere. We're going to see that happening uh, again. So, all right. Verse 29. It says, As soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. And they told him about her at once. And so he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately her fever left her and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons and they did not and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him now in the morning having risen a long while before daylight he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed and Simon Peter and those who were with him searched for him and when they found him they said to him everyone is looking for you but he said to them let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now, Mark gives us these kind of quick events, these high points again. Uh, he goes into Peter's house and his mother-in-law is sick. Um, and again, for us, you know, having a fever, we're like, okay, is that a big deal? Well, it was back then. That usually people with a fever just got worse and worse. And interesting, uh, historically, Galilee had some, something going on that it was known for a fever that killed. That people would get uh, around the Sea of Galilee, would get this fever, and it was a death sentence. And so when he comes into the house and they tell him, hey, she has a fever, uh, it is a big deal. And, and again, it seems so... Simple, you know, Jesus goes in and says he took her by the hand and he lifted her up, which just means he kind of sat her up in bed. But by the time she had sat up, fever was gone. She was healed. And then (laughs) I laugh at this every time because it's such the perfect mom move, right? She just like sits up like, hey, you kids look hungry. I'm going to make some food. (laughs) Jumps out of bed and that's what it means. And she served them. That she just starts making food for everybody and getting, make sure everybody's taken care of. And uh, again, I love it. It's such a such a real picture of what this all looked like, that she goes from the deathbed to the kitchen and uh, takes care of the people in her house. 
And then people start showing up, right? The word is out. They're coming there. Jesus is doing, is healing people and, and casting out demons, all these things. And I think it's cool, you know, again, it shows us a little insight into Jesus' character. That the way he deals with Peter's mother-in-law is the same way he deals with the crowd. There's no difference there. He doesn't, well, I'm going to save this for the big group that I'm meeting with tomorrow. And it's, it's like individually or in a crowd, he's the same. He teaches the disciples one-on-one, and he teaches the masses. He heals the one, and he heals the many, right? Again, it's just a great picture of, of the Lord's personality and of his character, how he has compassion and love on everybody the same. As I said earlier, we saw him speak, or we saw him act in obedience last week, and now we see him working in authority. But verse 35 shows us his priorities. So this day that we just read about was a busy day. They got the synagogue, they go right to Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law, big crowd shows up, he's healing people, casting out demons, late into the evening. And then we read, verse 35 says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Nobody would have blamed Jesus a bit to go, hey, yesterday was a big day. I'm going to sleep in a little bit, nice cup of coffee, a little breakfast, and we'll get the day going. But before anyone else is even up, a long while before dawn, he's already up. And he goes out to the solitary place to pray. I know for myself and a lot of us, there's something weird about the subject of prayer that almost instantly brings on this feeling of guilt, like, ah. I should be getting up earlier. I should be skipping breakfast too. I should be praying more. The thing is, is that with prayer, there's never enough, right? If you have somebody that prays 23 hours a day, he's asking himself, I should be praying, I should be praying 24. You know, why am I not more committed? Why am I not doing more? And I believe that feeling of guilt is because we totally misunderstand the purpose of prayer. We misunderstand God's heart toward it and how he wants us to apply it. Because Jesus does not seem burdened at all to go out and spend time with his Father. It's his priority. That's what he's about. He wants to spend time with his Father, and it's not this like, oh, gosh, okay, I guess I'll do it. And so I think just looking at this little piece here, it gives us some clues of maybe what our prayer life should look like. And, And so I've also got a couple questions that we can answer for ourselves as we think about the subject of prayer. Um, First of all, if Jesus needed to spend time in prayer, we all do, right? We're not busier than him. We're not more important than him. We don't have other things going on that take priority. If Jesus was cutting time out to pray, well, then we do too. We need to as well. Now, two things that we're told, it was before daylight, And it was a solitary place. It does not mean that we have to have our prayer time first thing in the morning. Or that we need to be up before the sun rises. But the idea is right. I think it applies to us maybe a little bit differently. Is that we need to have a time and a place of solitude. A quiet place. We need to have something that's carved out. That we know this is where things are going to be quiet for us. 
For some people, that's in the morning. Other people, it's in the evenings before bed that they're able to put all those thoughts away from the day and just like, no, I'm just going to think about the Lord. I'm going to spend some time in the Word, spend some time in prayer. That's great. So I don't think it needs to be one or the other. It's what is that quiet time for you? I know for me, sometimes it's driving. And there's plenty of distractions driving. But for me, it's just that quiet time in the car. Turn off the radio, turn off the music, and just have some time of prayer. It's a very peaceful time for me. Not for everybody. Um, But I think the location is also important. So not just the time, but the location. Jesus chose a place of solitude, away from the computers, away from the phone, away from any alerts, away from emails. All that stuff gets all shoved to the side and you're away from it. To be in a place of solitude, quietness without interruption. That we can just talk to the Lord. And that's really all prayer is. It's that conversation. Like with your best friend that you would say, Man, I'm frustrated about this. Or, you know, why am I letting these things consume my thoughts so much? And, and, I, and I want this to change in my life. And can you help me here? And it's a, it's a conversation of friendship. I believe that's why it was not a burden at all. Jesus was getting time with his heavenly Father. And making a point of it. We find him empowered. Strengthened from those times. Again, not burdensome. Not difficult, and we have every reason to believe that he enjoyed it. So I guess the questions I have, first of all, is where is that quiet place for you? When's the time? Where's the location? And I think if we're honest, we have trouble real or thinking about what that place is. I know that when I thought, okay, well, where's my quiet place? Huh. <laughs> Finally, I'm like, I guess my car when I'm driving. But it's not something that we can just readily say, oh, yeah, I know right where my quiet place is. I think we need to find it. I think we need to know it and be familiar with it. And then the other question I thought of is, is what would have to change in my prayer life or in my time of prayer that it was something I looked forward to and that empowered me, that charged my batteries? Because the way that I've approached prayer for years has been with that burden of like, oh, okay, I've got to do it. I've got to pray. I've got to spend at least this amount of time. And you know what? That's draining. And that's not what we see here with Jesus. Man, he comes out of his time of prayer ready to go, right? And I think it's even funny that the disciples are like, where have you been? And that's really their question. <laughs> They're like, uh, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus goes, time to move to the next city, boys. He doesn't give them any, any explanation. <laughs> He's just like, I'm ready to go. Time to preach, right? And, and off to the next city he goes. But it's from this time of prayer that he's charged up. So what needs to change in our prayer life to charge us up? For it to be something we look forward to, something that we we're, can't wait to get back to that place of solitude to spend with the Lord. Again, I don't know the answers to that for you, but I think these are good questions for us to ask. Verse 40 goes on. It says, now a leper came to him and implore, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus was moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken immediately, 
the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. There's something about this man with leprosy that moves me every time I read this story. Uh, Again, this is something we don't understand because we don't have something like this in, in our world, or certainly not in our culture. Leprosy was the most horrifying, terrible way for a person to die. And they didn't understand how it was spread. They just knew it had something to do with proximity to, to leprosy. right? I think we get just a little tiny, little grain of sand of a glimpse with COVID, right? When someone was like, oh, I've got COVID, and everyone's like, ah, you know, <laughs> I don't want that. And, and we're worried about a cold, and yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty deadly for some people. So we, but again, that, that's just a glimpse, because everyone who got leprosy died. It wasn't just a few. It wasn't a percentage. It wasn't a certain age group. It was everybody. And not knowing exactly how it was spread, that any time a leper was seen, people would start yelling, throwing rocks, Legally, they had to proclaim unclean everywhere they went so that anybody that might be coming near them would know. And that was the life of a leper. And so this guy has an incredible amount of boldness to, first of all, approach Jesus at all or even approach a a crowd. He's actually breaking the law in doing that. But he knows that Jesus is his only hope. And I I find it interesting that he does not question Jesus' power. He doesn't say, well, I don't know if you can or not, but it'd be great if you would. I don't know if you've got enough ability. He, He already believes that Jesus has enough ability. What he questions is his will. If you are willing, you can make me clean. His real question is, am I too far gone? Right? This isn't the beginning of leprosy. This guy is full-blown, no question that he has leprosy. And so the question he's asking, Jesus, am I too far gone for you to, to do any good? Am I beyond your will to heal me? And I think a lot of people still ask that same question. Have I gone too far? Am I too unclean? Yes, you've got the ability to do something, but I don't know if you want to. And this is why I think this is such an amazing insight to Jesus' character. Because, again, the social norms and even the law that had been laid down concerning leprosy, um, Jesus shouldn't be anywhere near this guy. They shouldn't have allowed him to get this close. And he's done that already. But he takes it a huge step further. And he touches him. Now, if you touched a leper and it was seen by another person, they just assumed you had leprosy. You were unclean. You were basically, you know, put in uh, isolation until it was uh, until enough time had passed. But Jesus goes beyond that. All of the social norms, all of the politics, all of the man-made rules. He breaks all of that 
and he didn't have to. He could have healed this guy at 10 feet away. He could have healed this guy at a quarter mile away. But he chooses to let him come close enough that Jesus can touch him and put his hand on him. And I, and I love that he says, I am willing, and then he touches him. And it says, verse 41, that Jesus was moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him. He said, I am willing, be cleansed. When Jesus reached out and touched him again, it would have been an event that caused people to gasp. When the leper first showed up, people would have like spread out. And I picture Jesus there and everybody else just like almost an explosion as they move away from this guy with leprosy. And then when Jesus touches him, everybody gasps like, oh my gosh, no, Lord, what have you done? Because the moment he touched him, he would have been unclean. However, when he touched him, he wasn't a leper anymore, so he wasn't unclean. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I don't know how that works. That's awesome, <laughs> right? That is just, again, such a great picture of, of Jesus' love. And all this was done for compassion and out of compassion. And he tells him, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Again, if you were the guy with leprosy, if you were the person with leprosy, you would tell everyone. There's no way you're going to walk into town and people are like, um, Joe, didn't you have leprosy yesterday? Oh, yeah, I can't talk about it. You'd be like, you're not going to believe what happened. This guy, Jesus, on the edge of town, and you would tell the whole story to every single person. So you can't blame him. But why did Jesus ask, hey, don't, don't say anything? Well, because there, there's a timing to Jesus' ministry. That the cross must take place at a certain day. And if things spin out of control too quickly, if his fame grows too fast, if he becomes too much of a problem for the religious leaders, then in that time he's not going to be correct. So it isn't that Jesus just wanted to be keeping a secret for the secret's sake, but there's a test or there's a there's a timing to these things. And we see that because of that, he's not able to go into town anymore. He's got to stay out in the desert. Now, the other thing that's great about this is he tells the, the man with leprosy, go and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded. As a testimony to them, meaning as a testimony to the priests. Now, in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 are where a lot of the laws concerning leprosy are. And in that, there is this sacrifice that's to be made. That when somebody was cleansed of leprosy, they were to go offer this specific sacrifice, and then the priest would know, okay, this guy's been cleansed of leprosy, that's great. But the thing is, is throughout the entire history of Israel, it had never happened. Not one Jewish person had ever been cleansed of leprosy ever. So God makes provision saying when someone is, here's the sacrifice that they offer. And it's never been used. And now this guy goes into the temple and says, hey, I need to, I need to make a sacrifice. And he brings the stuff and he makes it. And they're like, wait a second. This is the one for people cleansed of leprosy. And, and he's able to tell them the story. That's what Jesus says as a testimony to them. That not for necessarily the crowds, although they would hear it too, not the disciples, not the unbelievers, the religious leaders, the priests, that something has taken place in Israel that has never happened before. And it is because of Jesus. It is a testimony to them. Like I said, I believe that there are those of us that have a lot in common 
with this guy with leprosy. That maybe we look at our lives and go, man, have I gone too far? Have I done too much? Am I too unclean? But I think sometimes it's even more subtle than that. That it's, it's also the things that we've struggled with inside. Lord, if you're willing, you could take the struggle away. Lord, if you're willing, you could take this desire out of my heart. And, and again, we're not questioning his ability, but we're questioning his will. And I think we need to know that the answer to us is the same. The timing might not be what we want, but the question isn't, Lord, is this your will? Are you willing to cleanse me? Are you willing to heal me of these things? Because he says, I will. I, I, filled with compassion. He is willing to touch us and heal us. And, and make our lives that testimony to others, right? Whether that's the priests or to the lost or to our family or co-workers, that then when they see those changes taking place, we're able, like that leper, to go, I have been changed. Not just the moment of our salvation, but continuing to give the testimony of how he's changing our lives, how he's redeeming us even bit by bit, changing us more into his likeness. And we're able to tell people, hey, Jesus is the one that has authority over everything. And he can change our lives and he can change your life too. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.